No more sorrow, no more pain. Someday, those in Christ will what? Will rise. Yeah. Well, we're turning our attention today to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'm going to take you back to what Sue read to you before, uh, particularly verse 1, because in chapter 4, verse 1, it is crucial in understanding how we ought to approach spiritual growth. Now, Faith has just begun her journey. She's about five minutes into her spiritual journey. The question is, how is she going to grow spiritually? How do we do it? Let me read to you what Paul said here again. Verse 1. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Now, Paul brings up the same idea a little bit later in verse 10. He said, and in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you brothers to do what? To do it more and more. And then in verse uh, 11 of chapter 5, he says, therefore, encourage one another, build each other up, just as in fact you're doing. Now, Paul is saying, we've taught you how to do certain things. You're doing a good job. We encourage you now to keep it up. One Bible translator I looked at, William Barclay, said what this means is intensify your efforts. And see, this is a real crucial principle in spiritual growth. You grow by strengthening your strengths. Now, back when I was uh, teaching high school, uh, I was also the golf coach. When I was uh, coaching golf back a number of years ago, I, I thought this would be a great and wonderful opportunity for me to uh, improve my game at the same time. You know, the kids were playing every day. I got to play every day, so I thought I'd improve. And so I went to the club pro at Pottawatomie Golf Course, and I said, you know, what I'd like to have you do is to spend uh, a few hours on the course with me. Because uh, it's going to take that long to tell me everything I'm doing that's wrong. I was really surprised when he said, that's not how it works. He said, the objective is not to tell you everything that's wrong. He says, if I only tell you what's wrong, you'll just replace one bad habit with another bad habit. He said, the truth is, I've seen you out on the course and you've made some pretty good shots from time to time. He said, now if I could just get you to repeat those good shots more and more, your game is going to improve. I want to tell you something. Well, that's a golf lesson. That's the best-kept secret about living the Christian life. And it's this. The, it's also, I'll tell you, it's the best-kept secret in raising kids. It's also the best-kept secret in having a good marriage. It's the best-kept secret in leading a team to victory. And it's just simply this. Intensify what's right. Intensify your efforts. Now, many of you, though, probably did not grow up with that kind of coaching. Instead, you grew up with a different model where you had people around you like moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas who would berate you. Maybe you would even beat yourself up where the focus was always on the bad stuff you were doing. Cut that out. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And so you just go, okay, okay, okay. But nobody ever told you, do this instead. This is where you're really good. Now, believe it or not, that's not the way to grow in your Christian faith. I mean, clearly one goal in becoming a godly person 
is to get the bad stuff out of your life. And there's no way, Nick, I know that you want her to grow up to be a bad person. Kim, you don't want her to be a bad person. You want to do things that are going to encourage her not to do those things. But the right way is not to direct all of your attention on bad stuff. It's to direct their attention on the good things that they're doing and having them improve and strengthen and grow in what is right. Now, back to the example of golf. Uh, I used to golf with a, a guy uh, who came pretty close to driving me nuts on the golf course. When I was about to swing, uh, he'd start in and he'd say, okay, elbows in, don't lock your knees, widen your grip, you know, lower your head, straighten your back. And I remember one day I said, you know, don't you have enough sense not to antagonize someone who has in his hands something that could actually be used as a weapon? But see, that was his model of coaching. And that was to point out everything that was wrong. Sadly, this is the way many people approach their Christian life. You know, what am I doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? And so their entire focus you know, is that until the Christian life becomes more about measuring all of their failures rather than counting all of their victories. And... Believe it or not, this is the way a lot of people approach their relationships. They see what's missing, they see what's wrong, and how their needs aren't being met. Uh, but I've got to tell you, no relationship can live under that model when you're always going, oh, this is wrong, this is bad, nobody's meeting my needs. That's, that's a recipe for disaster. If you want to grow strong in your spiritual life, if you want to grow strong in your relationship life, let's say husband and wife, parents and children, what you need to do, even in your spiritual growth, is to use the biblical model, which is very simply, strengthen your strengths. That's what the scriptures are talking about. Zero in on what you're doing right, and then do it better. Now, does that mean you ignore your weaknesses? No, absolutely not. It just means that the more you expand on doing right, the smaller your weaknesses become. Now, we get into chapter 4, Paul tells us that there are three areas in which we need to strengthen our strength. These are three areas where you may be very weak today, you may feel very inadequate today, but remember the golf swing. We're going to talk about what is right and then just intensify that effort. We're doing three areas. The very first one, we need to pursue sexual purity. And some of you went, oh my goodness, the pastor's going to talk about sex today. I got news for you. I am. It's okay. You know why? God invented it. We did not invent it. God invented it. Let me refresh your memory here, verses 3 to 5. It is God's will that you should be what? Sanctified that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. Now, I went back and looked at this in the original language, in the Greek language, and the phrase control his own body can also be translated, you should learn to live with your own wife in a way that is holy and honorable. Now, both interpretations point to the same principle. It's this, that as Christians, as Christ followers, we are called to be sexually pure. 
Now, I want you to understand, Paul did not write this letter to the people living in Mayberry. You remember the Andy Griffith show? Do you remember the time when Gomer Pyle thought he had to marry Thelma Lou because she'd kissed him on the jaw? See, Paul was writing to a society whose sexual purity, their marriage fidelity, were foreign concepts. In fact, Paul was writing to a group of people who assumed that a man could have and should have as many partners as he wanted. Let me quote the great Greek scholar Demosthenes. Quote, we keep prostitutes for pleasure. We keep mistresses for the day-to-day -day needs of the body. We keep wives for the begetting of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. End quote. Did you get that? That was the prevailing attitude of the people that Paul was talking about, that women served only three different purposes in life, and all of them involved sex. But then Paul comes back, and what does he say? Hold it, folks, you're wrong. Take responsibility for yourself. Take control of your own body. Treat your wife with holiness and honor. In this matter, he said, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. Now, I want you to know that when Paul uses this word brother, it's kind of this generic word for brother or sister. He's really saying nobody should wrong their brother or sister or take advantage of him or her. What he's saying is, men, you do not take advantage of a Christian sister sexually, not even your wife. You don't take advantage of her. And he also says, and you don't entice or encourage your brothers to do wrong either. I mean, if Paul were living today, he says, for God's sakes, folks, don't be hauling your men friends off to strip clubs and stuff like that. That's not what Christians do. Now, this may be a battle that some of you lose. It's a battle that some of you may lose often. It may be an area in which you actually feel weak. And so what I want you to do is rather kind of go, oh, man, I really, I'm bad at this one. I'm, no, we're not going to worry about that. I said, what I want you to do is ask yourself in your relationships, what am I doing right? I mean, in the moments in which I have victory in my relationships, what do I do right? And how can I do that even better? See, the call to live a sexually pure life is a real challenge today. I got to tell you, I saw a few young girls at uh, the airport in Chicago yesterday that were a study in contrast. You could barely notice the cross hanging around their neck because of the cleavage in the shorts that they were wearing. It was a study in contrast. And sometimes we say, well, it's hard to live a sexually pure life in today's society. But I got to tell you, friends, it's always been difficult. I don't care what generation it was. It can be back in the Stone Age when I lived as a teenager. It's in every culture you go at, but it's not impossible. You can have victory in this area. And how do you get there? You strengthen your strengths. You identify what you're doing right. You say, this is what God said. This is, I'm going to follow that. And you keep on doing it. Here's the second thing. He says, pursue a loving heart. Verses 9 and 10. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Paul says, 
you guys do a great job. In fact, as your pastor, I'm going to tell you, you guys do a great job of loving each other for the most part. We're not going to worry about it. But you do a good job loving each other. I've noticed that when people come to our church that you don't know, you find a way of greeting them. There's a whole bunch of people up here. I don't know who they are. I kind of figure they're associated with faith some way. And I know that some of you are going to go, <coughs> you're going to come up and greet them. There's some folks here today. You know, I know we got, we got towns in Texas like Pittsburgh and Omaha. <laughs> but I understand today we got people here from Denmark, right? Where's the Denmark people? Somebody told me there are people here from Denmark. There you go. They're way in the back. That must, they must be Danish Lutherans. <laughs> well, I know you're going to greet them after a while. You're going to love these people. Now, Paul just says, you know, you're doing a good job. Strengthen your strengths. And look at everything you're doing right, but don't leave it at that. Instead, look at everything you're doing right and say, how can I do more? How can I love somebody more? How can I grow in this area? How can I show my kids more effectively how much I love them? I mean, how can I demonstrate a greater love to my spouse? I mean, how can I love my neighbors and my friends and my co-workers with a greater love, with a love that is like the love of Jesus? Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said in John 13, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you what? Love one another. <clears throat> Some of you know that Friday morning I, I left pretty early to fly to Chicago to do a funeral yesterday afternoon. My flight got canceled Friday morning, so I got there a little bit late. And I got home last night just as they were blowing up the bridge. I got home. I, but I was home by midnight, so I probably... We'll stay awake for at least another 15 minutes to preach. So I'm standing in the line last night at O'Hare going through security. And I'm a sucker for little kids. I really am. And I was standing in line and I happened to turn around and I looked. There was this little guy. He was Indian. I knew right away he was from India or Pakistan. But he's the cutest little dude. He had on this little jacket. He had a backpack that had a little teddy bears sticking out. He had the cutest little hat. He had this thing around with a water bottle hanging out. And there standing next to him was his mom. And uh, she had backpacks and was lugging stuff. And, and I, I said, do you mind if I ask you where you're from? And she said, Chennai. I said, Chennai? Wow. I know people who live in Chennai, in India. I said, in fact, I work in Andhra Pradesh in a place called Vishakapatnam. I'm the president of, I, don't, I didn't tell her, I guess I didn't tell her what I, what I was doing there, but I've been to India a number of times. And she said, oh, that's very nice. I said, are you going home? She said, yes, I'm going home, catching a flight. And then she, I said, well, good. And she said, are we going to Terminal 3 Concourse G? And I looked at her ticket and I said, yeah, just follow me. That's where I'm going. And then she tapped me on the back and she said, my little boy is tired of waiting in the line. Is there something we can do to get through? And I said, quite honestly, no. And I said, you know, he's probably not going to come to me, but I would hold him for a while if he just needed to be. She said, no, that'd be okay. And I leaned down, I said, the little guy, I said, I know you don't know what I'm talking about. I said, but you just hang in there, buddy. We'll make it through this line. Well, she finally, I happened to notice that she put down all of her bags and she picked the little guy up and he put her head, he's probably maybe two years old. And so what I did is I said, oh, let me take care of your stuff. And I 
I pushed it through into the next line. I said, we'll get it when we come around here. <laughs> we got up there. I pushed it into the next line. I said, we'll get it around here. And we got up there. I set it up on the conveyor belt for her. And, and then she followed through. And when I was walking out through security, I made a right-hand turn, and I happened to look over my shoulder, and she was going in the opposite direction. And I went back. I said, excuse me, excuse me, uh, you're supposed to follow me. I kind of know where I'm going. We're going down here, Terminal 3, Concourse G. And she says, oh, thank you. And we're walking down, and she said, can I ask you something? Sure. She said, are you a Christian man? I said, really? <laughs> are you a Christian man? I said, uh, why, yes, I am. I said, are you a Christian woman? And she said, no, I'm Hindu. I said, oh, okay. I said, what made you ask me whether I was a Christian man? She said, because you were so friendly and helpful to me. And I said, aren't Hindus that way? And she said, not all the time. I said, well, how do you know about Christian man? Nancy, you're going to get a real kick out of this. Guess where her little guy had been a couple of months ago at that Sunday school rally with Christabel Russeliah. Remember, we, we took our vacation Bible school money and supported that vacation Bible school, and that little guy was one of the people who came to it and that was the first time this woman and her family had ever been associated with Christian people. And what she knew about Christians was they were nice people. I'm not going to tell you that I led her to Jesus or baptized both of them at O'Hare. <laughs> but I am going to tell you that a seed was planted somewhere and I'm thankful that God could use me in that small way, but I'm thankful that God could use you, the folks of this congregation and our VBS kids, and for Christabel Russeliah, who you've all met, who's been here in our church, because the way they treated other people in that society has opened a little door for them. Strengthen your strength. Here's the last one. So far, I've talked about sex, and everybody come on. Okay, love each other, but oh, kid, we're getting back to normal. Okay, here's number three. Pursue a quiet life. Hmm. Verse 11 and 12. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Here it comes. And mind your own business. And to work with your hands, just as we said, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you'll not be dependent on anybody. Now, did you catch that? It said, lead a quiet life. I'll tell you, a long time ago, when I first read this, I thought to myself, I thought we were supposed to be out there witnessing all the time and shouting from the rooftops and crying out the name of Jesus and pointing out the wrong in this world and on and on. But Paul says what? Do your own job, mind your own business, take care of your own responsibilities, or as my grandma used to say, sweep in front of your own door first. And here he uses a phrase that's very important, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Now, did you get that? Your daily life. Now, it's easy to impress people if you only see them once in a blue moon. It's easy to impress people if you only see them once a week. It's pretty easy to, 
to impress a woman from Chennai. I, I saw her all of maybe 45 minutes yesterday. But when people see you in your daily life, how you do your job, how you talk to your kids, when they see how you treat each other, when they see you up close and personal, are you still able to earn their respect? It says something about who you really are. There's another phrase in here that you can't afford to ignore, and that's because I'm going to talk about it. Okay? Mind your own business. Anybody watch that LeBron James travesty on television? I'm sorry to put it that way. But I'll tell you, if there's something that just, I, I hate to use this word, galls me. <laughs> but, that, but, but I think that's G-A-L-L-S. <laughs> that just really bugs me about our culture. I just do not understand this, even though I've been, I've been sucked into it every once in a while, is the desire, I mean, this over-desire to know the intimate details about everybody's life, in particular famous people. I mean, why would anyone care about Lindsay Lohan? Why would anyone care what movie star is sleeping with this movie star? Why would anyone care what that famous personality had to drink last night? I, I mean... Honest to goodness, if it doesn't have anything to do with the player's performance on the field, I don't even care to know it anymore. I had a pastor call me one time. He said, I've got to share this with you. i got a great sermon coming up. I said, what's it called? He said, it's a Christian response to the Tiger Woods scandal. He says, what do you think our response to that should be? And I said, I've been studying First Thessalonians in verse 11. Mind your own business. Mind your own business. Now, some people say, well, hold it. Shouldn't we be offended? You know, shouldn't we speak out? How can we condone that as Christians? Well, friends, no one's asking you to condone another person's activity. But Paul makes it pretty clear here. If you're not directly involved, mind your own business. Now, the problem is, we carry that curiosity about famous athletes and famous movie stars into the workplace. We are nosy and we are busy bodies where we work. We take it in our neighborhood. Oh, what are they doing over in their yard? What, what, what are they doing over there? I wonder if they're cooking back there on that grill. Find, friends, mind your own business. Let me take it one step further. You knew this was coming. We even drag it in the church. We somehow think it's okay to discuss and analyze the faults of every pe other person in our church. There's a word for that habit. Anybody know what that word is? Gossip. And the Bible has a special word for gossip. Anybody know what that word is? Sin. <laughs> there you go, sin. I mean, there are some people in churches across America, and probably here in Texarkana, or on Texas Boulevard at 4600, who think they have the right to pry into the private lives of their friends and neighbors and co-workers and friends, all I can say is, what does Paul say? Mind your own business, take care of your own responsibility. 
When I think about people in life that I most admire, they have one trait that's in common. I, 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 I can't say never, but I rarely ever hear them gossip. I think the kind of person that God uses does not have a habit of messing in other people's lives. They don't meddle. They take care of what God's called them to do, and as a result, their lives are blessed. So what have we talked about today? We talked about sexual purity, controlling your body, whether you're married or single. Treat others with honor and respect. We've talked about learning to uh, love other people. Greater love is no one than this, Jesus said, than you lay down his life for his friends. We talk about a, a quiet life, taking care of our own job. You know, <clears throat> what do we do with those blocks? We strengthen our strengths. How are we good? What are the good things that we do in this? Verse 1, we instructed you how to live in order to please God is in fact you're doing. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Now, one last thing. And this is very important that you hear what I have to say. It's very important that you understand what I'm about to say. And what I'm going to tell you is that in no way, absolutely in no way whatsoever am I telling you that you can do this on your own. I am not telling you that. And the reason I'm not telling you that is because you can't do it on your own. And in no way am I suggesting that we're going to do these three things to somehow earn the favor of God. That if I practice sexual purity and if I love other people and I mind my own business, God will now love me and he will open up the door for heaven for me and I can just pray right in and say, I get to sit down front. While this message and other messages in this series may be kind of front-loaded with what we would call living a sanctified life, none of it is possible without what? Being firmly attached to Jesus. And nothing we can do can make that relationship with Jesus happen or get better. I want to end with Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. It is the foundation stone of our relationship with God through Jesus, and it is the reason why we want to live the lives that we live. Here it is. It says, For it is by grace you've been saved. How? Through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's what? It's a gift of God. Why? Otherwise we'd brag about it. But then he goes on and says, But we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Don't forget that strengthen your strengths. But God's love comes first. Then comes our response. May God grant it for Jesus' sake.